Lonnie is our elder that beats around the bush. <laughs> Good morning, anyway. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm <clears throat> one of the pastors on our staff here at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that y'all are here. Lots of places you could be, but I believe that God's got us together. Uh, he's sovereign. He's ordained this coming together this morning or watching on, uh, on any of a number of different places online today. But I'm thankful, and, and let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for, for being exactly who you say you are. Lord, for being able to do every single thing that you say you can do. Lord, we trust you. Lord, you're faithful when we're faithless. Lord, we ask you to be in the, in the middle of this room today that your Holy Spirit would um, lead the words that are spoken. Lord, that hearts and minds would open up to the truth claims that your word makes. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So y'all, we are, we are uh, been in the book of Acts for several months now, probably a year, and, and we are in chapter 16 today. The last couple of weeks, we've talked through what evangelism looks like, really what evangelism looks like when it's done, uh, when it's done right, the foundational principles of evangelism. And when we left off last week, our our missionary team, Paul and Timothy and Silas uh, and Luke, had crossed the, uh, the Aegean Sea, and they'd landed in this place called Neapolis. And you see on the map, that's the Aegean Sea up there. They crossed that, that big water, and they, they are at the port city of Neapolis. And if you hadn't been here in the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick rundown on how they ended up where they're, where they're at. They were in Antioch of Pisidia, and really before that they were in, in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. but they, they get up to Antioch and Pisidia, which is in south-central Galatia. God had moved and moved them, and, and they, were, uh, they were being led by the Holy Spirit, and most of the leading that the Holy Spirit was doing was really by restraint, by shutting doors, and you'll see that they, they kind of are heading west, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to Asia, they head north. Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to go up into Bithynia, and they, the only place they could go was straight west, and they head straight to Troas. They kind of wiggle through the northern county line of Asia and the southern line of Mesia, and they land in this, this west coast of uh, Asia city called Troas. And while they're there, verse 9 of Acts 16 tells us that, uh, that Paul had a vision of this man in Macedonia, which is across the the water, that, that Aegean Sea, and that man in Macedonia in that vision is, is, is begging for them to come and to help. And so they left Troas and they sailed, really the text would say they sailed straight away to Neapolis. And so that gets the team over there in Macedonia. And Macedonia is a territory today that we know is Greece. So the gospel now is jumping over from Asia, jumping over to Europe, that area of, of Greece had come under the control of a guy named Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And so at one point in time, the entire known world was really ruled from that area by Philip of Macedon and then his son, Alexander the Great. But by the first century, by the time that we're in now, it had become simply a, a province of Rome. But it had some great cities in there, Philippi and Thessalonica, and then in the south, Athens and Corinth. And you know those cities because... You know, the, the, 
the sum of Paul's letters, the letter to the Philippians, and then First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. So again, now the the gospel of, of of Jesus Christ is about to invade a very very influential part of the world, and you're going to see in just a minute that he is going to use a woman to kick it off. Now, let me give you a little snippet of what life was like for a woman, for a female in that day. In the Gentile world, if a man didn't like his breakfast, he had a right to kill his wife without recourse. And you may say, well, that's just some crazy Gentile people. It's much better in the Jewish world of that day. Well, not so fast. It's not really that much better. Here's the way that, that first century, and really prior to that, the way that the Jews dealt with women. They said that a Jew could not greet a woman, couldn't even talk with her on the street, even if it was uh, his mama or his wife or his daughter. Part of the daily prayer of Jews, the daily prayer of Jewish men, was thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman said it every day. They had a dictate that read it would be better to burn it than to hand the law over to a woman. It'd be better to burn it than to put this in the hand of a female. I could go on and on, but, but suffice it to say that women were at very best, really they were second-class citizens all the way around. So it is into that culture, it is into that mindset, it's into that ideology that Luke's words beginning in verse 12, that, well, you know what, let's back up to verse 11. It's into that culture that these words are written. So I'm going to start in verse 11. Now let me ask you this. If you don't have a worship guide, please raise your hand and somebody will get one into your hands. But starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, the text says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then Luke adds, And she prevailed upon us. So y'all, in the in first century Philippi, it was this hustling, bustling, busy community. And it was at the junction of two trade routes. And one was by land. Uh, via the highway from Thessalonica, and the other was by sea via the, the port at Neapolis. Philippi had, had been a colony of Rome since about 31 B.C., so about 90 years or so. The Bible tells us in verse 12 that, that the boys spent some days there. They spent some time there. Apparently, they were waiting for the Sabbath because if you remember Paul's M.O., the way that Paul did stuff was that he took the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. So, so first he goes to the synagogues. They're going to have synagogue. They're going to have worship service on Saturday. So must have gotten there kind of at the beginning uh, of the week. And so they're waiting for the Sabbath. But the problem is Philippi was nearly all a Gentile 
city, a Gentile community, and there was not a synagogue there. Because to have a synagogue in any community, you've got to have at least 10 Jewish men. It's called a minion, M-I-N-Y-N, not M-I-N-I-O-N. It's not that. It's a minion. You've got to have 10 men. And, y'all, it is that way today. You cannot have it. Even if you have a synagogue, you cannot have a worship service. You cannot read Scripture if there's not a minimum of 10 men there. There could be 1,000 women, but if there's nine men, you can't have a worship service. And the story goes that that, that number 10 comes from the account in Genesis about, about uh, God laying the hammer down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God told Abraham that he'd spare that city, if, if you just find me 10 righteous men and I'll spare the cities. That's where the, the story goes. That's where it came from. But you know, you don't have 10 men, can't have a synagogue, can't have a worship service. Now, this issue, this, this minimum of 10 men, y'all, it is a classic example of, of cramming something into Scripture that's not there. You cannot find anywhere in Scripture that you have to have 10 men to have a worship service. You've got to have 10 men to read the Torah, to read Scripture. You can't find it. It's just this, this typical thing. You think people do that today? They cram stuff in Scripture that is just not there. Frankly, the rabbis of the day really kind of just made that up. But now tradition did say that if, if there was no synagogue, that women were allowed to get together and pray. That's a little condescending. But they're allowed to get together and pray. But if they wanted to have a legit service, if they wanted to read Scripture, there had to be at least 10 men. To read from the Torah had to be at least 10 men. Any formal prayer, any formal worship, there had to be at least 10 men. And so when our missions team is in Philippi, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, they figured out where these Jewish women were, where they gathered to pray and they went there. Verse 13 says that they were down by the riverside, down by the river. So the guys went down to the water to have a chat with these Jewish ladies. And oddly enough, the one of them that responded the, the most positively to the message, at least according to Luke, the one that responded the most positively, she wasn't even Jewish. She wasn't born Jewish. She was a Gentile who, verse 14 says, she was a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was seeking for truth. She was, she was searching for truth, and she worshiped God. Luke writes it like this in, in verse 14. He says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, that's not many words. It's one verse, but, y'all, we can learn a whole lot about this lady from those few words in verse 14. This lady named Lydia, she, obviously she's, she's a businesswoman. She sold purple dye and she sold purple textile products. Probably those things were made in her home city of Thyatira because we know from archaeology that, that there was a famous place there, they called it a guild, where they, uh, where they made purple stuff, where they got purple dye and they dyed things purple, textiles. Purple was was very rare and crazy expensive because you got it one drop at a time from this little shelled, uh, this little shelled creature called a murex. 
Y'all, I'm giving you all kind of little trivial tidbits of information. Purple, one drop at a time. That's why it was so expensive. The clothes and the products that were made with this dye, that's why royal is, is the, uh, excuse me, purple is a royal color. But the clothes, they were really reserved for wealthy people because it was so expensive. It was one of the most precious commodities of, the, uh, of that ancient world. And so Lydia was not a poor lady. She was not. She was probably a lady of very significant means because of the business that she ran. Verse 15 talks about her household. Her household tells me that she maintained a home in Philippi. Most assuredly, she had servants. So have no doubt, this lady was a wealthy lady. She was a wealthy lady, and she's about to have heart surgery. Her story is this awesome image of the way God does things, of the way God does that thing that he does, the way that he the way, that he, the way that he folds us into his family, the way he brings us into his family, we think that we are in control. Total control that, that we're digging in and we're searching for him. That trusting in Christ is simply within the realm of my own power and my own control and my, and my own ability to choose we think that we're completely sovereign over our hearts and over our minds and over our affections. But the truth is, when you see somebody like this and you see somebody that is searching, worshiping, seeking truth like Lydia, you can be for sure that the Lord has been drawing them to himself. Multiple different ways, but he's drawing people to himself. If I told you that I knew how all that worked, I'd just be telling you a story. But I know, for me, back in 2000, 22 years ago, that somehow the Lord put it in my mind, put it in my heart to pick up a Bible and read it. I never, ever in a million years would, <clears throat> would I have ever picked up a Bible to read it on my own. There's no way. He, he just put it inside my head or something. And you know what happened when I pick it up and I start reading, he met me there. Like he met me there. Like he met me in the, in the text of his word. Because it's his word. It's inspired. It's a supernatural book. And he, and he just showed up there. The Holy Spirit opened up the word. Really, the Holy Spirit opened up the word in a, in a mighty way. And he allowed me to... He opened it up in a way that allowed me to understand. Now, did it allow me to understand all of it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you know what? He opened it up, and he allowed me to understand enough to get saved. Ain't none of us going to understand all of it. It's a daily digging in and studying and reading and bouncing stuff off of each other. But a child can pick the scriptures up and understand enough to get saved. And that's what happened 20-something years ago. And I know that when I trusted in Christ, and I am sure that when Lydia trusted in Christ, the Spirit was drawing her in. I know he was drawing me in. If he wasn't, then no one would ever come to trust in him. Look at John 6, Jesus' words, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
The Father draws us, and he can draw us in all kind of crazy different ways. He can draw us with our, with our spouse, with our parents, with our, um, with our children. He can draw us with things out in the world. Dude, look at the birth of a child and tell me that just happens randomly. doesn't. He can draw us with all kinds of circumstances and people and, and in just in multiple different ways. But I know that the text says that no one can come to the Father unless he draws them. He does stuff with your heart, right? And Scripture speaks a lot about the human heart. The fallen human heart is in slavery to sin. It's in slavery to sin. It's all over Scripture. Look at Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5 talking about all, the, all of mankind, all the people on the planet. And it says, that the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Y'all, that is an indictment. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart, every one of them is evil. Jeremiah in chapter 17 says the heart is deceitful. Above all things, the heart is deceitful and it's desperately sick. And then he goes on, Jeremiah goes on, he says, can the can the leopard change his own spots? Can the Ethiopian change his own skin? No. No, the bottom line is we are jacked up, and we can't fix it ourselves. We can't. We can't handle our jacked upness ourselves. We are hopelessly enslaved to sin. We cannot give ourselves a heart transplant. It just doesn't work that way. Now, Lydia has a pretty good start. Because scripture tells us that she worshipped Yahweh. She worshipped God. She worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then verse 14, Luke says that Lydia heard us. She heard us. The language there is more than just sound waves coming out of their mouth and bouncing off all those little bones in your ear. She was intensely listening. That word says. says she was laser focused on every syllable that came out of their mouths. And the content of their message was what it always was. What it always ought to be. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Christ. The long prophesied about Messiah. That was the content of the message. For Paul and Timothy and Simon, it was always the message. The cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. And then, you know, the, the latter part of verse 14 really does kind of tell it all. It says, the Lord cracked open her heart with the message of his son. Cracked open her heart with the message of his son. She didn't do it herself. She didn't open up her heart herself. She didn't open up her mind herself. She didn't open up her ears to the truth herself. And yes, she was searching and she was seeking and, and, and she was worshiping. But even all that can be attributed to the Lord drawing her in. Now, that idea, that philosophy, that idea, that, that principle can be a real struggle for me and you to get our arms around. Like I know it can. 
The idea that if it were not for God's sovereign work drawing us to him and, and busting our hearts open to believe that no one would ever be saved, no one could ever be saved, like I know that's, that's a, it's a struggle to really kind of understand that. But you know, Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to this. When Paul tells us that, that salvation is by grace, just y'all, even just the concept of grace, just, we're going to get back to that, the rest of that verse, but just the idea of grace is so antithetical to the world. It's so antithetical to, to that's a cool word, I've used it twice. It's so the opposite of the way the world really kind of works, the opposite of the way people treat each other. You get what you deserve. You're mean to me, I'm going to knock you out. It, it, that's just the way, and the world is telling us that all the time, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Ephesians chapter 2 says that salvation is, is by grace. It's great by grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything. It's by grace. It's not of our doing. Paul writes, it's not of our doing. It's, it's not a result of works. It's not a result of works. It's a gift. And that word is used there. It's a gift from God. And yeah, in Ephesians 2, it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. So you and I, we do got to say yes. Like we do. Of course we do. But I know for me, and I know for me because I was actually there for me. I know that he opened up my heart. I don't know how he did it. I wish I could tell you that I knew. I don't know how he did it. But I know he opened up my heart and he made it possible for me to trust in him. Like, and I know that his grace, in my, in my own personal experience, I know that his grace, it was irresistible. It, it was, and that's probably a weird word to use too. But I feel like even in my own personal faith, that my faith is a gift from God. It was a gift from God, and today it's a gift from God. He, he opened up everything to allow me to trust in him. And I believe inside of us way down deep, maybe we all, um, all kind of know this. Like I pray all the time for my lost friends and my lost family, which is 98% of my family, that God would open up their hearts. Well, if it was all about their control over their heart and their control over their mind and their control over their affections, why would I pray? Why would I pray like that? I'm praying that God would open up their hearts that he would use somebody or use some event or reveal himself to them in some mighty way, and that, and that would open up their hearts. Somewhere inside of us, I think that we kind of all know that, that our salvation is completely dependent on God's grace and not on our doing anything. We bring nothing to the table. I know I didn't. All I brought to the table was the sin that made it all necessary. And so just like Lydia, all of us that are, that are Christ followers, we just got to admit that it was God that first opened up our hearts and minds. Now, with that said, because I told you it's hard to get our arms around this and it's a struggle to kind of understand it, but I don't want you to think for a second that I'm professing that God's sovereignty is about him forcing people um, 
against their wills to believe because it's not. It's not. I used this term a minute ago, irresistible grace. And that's a weird phrase, and I get that it's a weird phrase. But grace, as hard as it is to understand, grace doesn't put somebody's hands up behind their backs and, and push them against their will toward Jesus. No, that's not, that's not how it works. No, grace, it, it draws us in. It doesn't push us. It, it just kind of draws us in willingly to him by opening up our hearts and opening up our minds. It allowed me personally to see my sin for what it was, to see my sin for what it is. It allows us to hate our sin that we used to love. It allows us to see Jesus for who he is. So when I saw myself in a transparent kind of way, I saw myself as I was and I saw Jesus as he is. Honestly, y'all, that whole total package was completely irresistible. The way that Luke describes it in Acts 16, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's simple. It's beautiful and it's simple and it's short. The Lord opened her heart and here's a shocker, she believed. The Lord opened her heart and her mind and she believed. His sovereignty is, is all over all of it. From the time our little missionary team left South Central Galatia, it looks like they were destined on a collision course with this little group of women on this riverbank in Philippi. And God is orchestrating that whole trip to get them to that point. It's not happenstance either that Lydia was there seeking and searching and worshiping truth. It was God's providence that Lydia shows up down at that riverbank with God-given attentive ears, because text says she heard us, and a divinely opened heart. That didn't randomly just happen. It was all at the right place at the right time with the right people, and their paths crossed. And her heart, her heart just opens up. And that new heart that she's given by the Lord transformed her life as it usually does. Her enthusiasm and fervency and, and the, the passion that she has about her newfound faith, it is plainly obvious. Look at verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, She's baptized. Don't forget where they are at this moment, right? They're down by the hooch. They're down by the river. Just like the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 took the God plunge right then and there. Baptized right then and there. Luke, then in verse 15, he uses this household language. I, I, I touched on it a second ago. Typically, that, that household language would, language would be telling us about a about a husband or children, her actual blood family. But nothing in Scripture looks like Lydia is married. And in that culture, it would have been super unusual for her to have a bunch of family responsibilities with, with a bunch of little kids and a, and a husband to, to tend to and to take care of and to be running a successful import and export business. It just would have been, it just would have been unusual and odd. 
However, the household that Luke writes about in verse, verse 15 is, quote, it was her household. That tells me she's the head of the household. Odd in that culture. She could have been a widow. Scripture doesn't say, I don't know, she could have been a widow. But it was definitely her household, and it almost assuredly included servants. She may have had adult children that lived there and traveled with her in all of her business dealings. Could have been part of, the, part of her, her purple business. But whoever it was that is included in that household, in that language, all of them trusted in the Lord, were saved and baptized as well. And I don't think that it happened at that same instant. I think the entirety of that text looks like it happened that day. But I, I don't think they would have been down there with her, but they could have been. The bottom line is, think about it. This lady is already leading people to Christ. Her mind opens up. She's baptized. She gets saved. She's baptized. And then she's starting to share her Jesus story with the people in her, in her world. You know, when Jesus says in Acts 1-8, be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out of the world, she's sharing in her Jerusalem, her household. First and foremost, she's worried about her household. Men and women, worry about your household first. Worry about them. Share your Jesus story with them. So this lady, she's leading people. She's sharing the gospel with, with them. She leads them to the cross, and when she leads them to the cross, the Lord meets them there and opens up their hearts, and they are saved. Now look at the rest of verse 15. You know, after she's baptized her and her household as well, she urged us saying, remember this is Luke writing, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. In other words, if you, if you realize, if y'all, you know, Luke, uh, Timothy, Paul, and Silas, if y'all realize that I'm all in, if you realize that I'm on the team, that I'm really saved, that I'm with you and I'm for you, if, if, you, if you trust that I'm faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, Luke writes. So the Holy Spirit clearly gives this lady the gift of hospitality. Gift of hospitality. And she was quick to show it to the guys because she's like, y'all, please come stay. Please come stay with me. Even if it's just for a bit, I got, I got plenty of room. I got plenty of room. And then, and then Luke writes, she prevailed upon us. And, then, and the New King James says, so she persuaded us. The message, which is not a translation, but it's a paraphrase of Scripture, it really captures the nuance of this last phrase in verse 15. And, and, and the message reads, we hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. She just wouldn't take no for an answer. She's begging them to come stay with, with her. And they were all, they were like, you know, we're not sure. We got, we got stuff to do. We got people to see. We got a bunch of appointments. We, we may not have time. But she would not take no for an answer. She definitely was a wealthy lady. At a minimum, you're really talking about four guys, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, but probably you're really talking, they, probably they had other people with them, other guys on their team. And so she's inviting them as house guests. Even today, most people could not on spur of the moment ask six, seven, eight, nine, ten people to just come over, men. Tell me how this would go in your house, and I can say this because my wife's in Birmingham uh, at a wedding shower, but if you're to call your wife 
whether she's at home or whether she's at work, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and you say, baby, um, I got, I got uh, nine guys that are going to come stay with us. Well, when are they coming? Uh, be there about 6 o'clock. Like, raise your hand if that conversation would go over real well. It would not, in my house, it would not go over well. And she says, you know, Susan, Susan would say, well, how long are they going to be here? Because, you know, Susan, my wife is the poster child for the gift of hospitality. But even that kind of a question, right? Well, how long are they going to stay? Well, it's kind of indefinite. <laughs> right? I mean, even in today's world of where people's houses are, bigger and got more bedrooms really than any of us need, nobody would do that. Very few would do that. So Lydia's hospitality, it is awesome. But you know, there's another little tidbit that kind of is lying under the surface that really makes her hospitality even more awesome. She knew it was there. The guys probably knew that it was there. The truth is this little issue really could have been why they hesitated to go with her. And you'll see this next Sunday and the next Sunday when we get to this part of Acts 16. But at the end of the day, Paul and the guys are beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi for sharing the gospel. Now, the spoiler alert is that while they're in jail, a whole bunch of folks in jail got saved with Paul and and Silas and the guys there. But I'm pretty sure, y'all, that Lydia knew that this was a dangerous proposition that and she was exposing herself potentially to trouble that she knew that it could mess up her business. She knew that it could, uh, it, it could create ill will in her, in her community. She knew that maybe she could even be tossed in jail for it. So that's probably lying under the surface there too. Now look, I want to go up about 20,000 feet. I want to look down at the big picture here. The Lord gets this mission team to Philippi in just the right way that he wants to, in just the right time, shucking and jiving, zigging and zagging through Galatia and Asia and all of that, down to Troas, and and then the Lord gives a vision to Paul, gets him across the Aegean Sea to Neapolis, and then right up to Philippi, because Neapolis is really a port for Philippi. And in perfect timing, he crosses their path with the paths of these women down by the river. Women, wait, what? Women? Thank you, Lord, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. A woman, y'all, that is such utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. But then he, when they're there, he opens up her heart to the message of the cross. And she's saved. And she's given the gift of hospitality. And she immediately uses her hospitality, that gift from the Holy Spirit. And that paves the way for the church to penetrate Europe. Y'all, this woman was the first person to get saved on the continent of Europe. That's unbelievable. She's the first one. And God got this, it looks like, did all of that, months and months and months of weaving all the way to get to her. Now, when people say God doesn't care about me, I'm just one guy or I'm just one lady, that's nonsense. Look at all of that that he did with this team to get them to that moment to share that simple message of the gospel 
with Lydia, and she gives her heart and life to Christ, and she's the first convert. The evidence of Scripture is that they stayed with her for quite a while. In fact, the evidence of Scripture is that they were in Philippi long enough to plant a church. A whole bunch of folks had given their lives to Christ, and their first meeting place was where? In a home church under Lydia's roof. Lydia becomes a champion for Christ, a supporter of Paul in the mission trips. Her hospitality graciously opening up her home to this missions team, it results in her being remembered down the, the corridor of, of time, the corridor of history, as hosting the first ever earliest meeting of the first church ever established in Europe. Like, that is unbelievable. She is an incredibly beautiful example of hospitality, of the kind of hospitality that all of us ought to have as Christ followers. It's all God's sovereignty. And I'm, frankly, y'all, his sovereignty, over, it overwhelms me. It just overwhelms me. It's a guy named J. Vernon McGee. I don't know if any of y'all ever heard of J. Vernon McGee. Old-time pastor, writer, theologian. Always uses super flowery language. I love the way he writes. He used to have a radio show. They took his radio show and turned it into commentary. And he said this, what's on the screen, I assume it is. Yeah. He said, this is God's universe and God does things his way. And you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And I love it. Like, I love it. That's all, that's all God's sovereignty. But, you know, Lydia's faith and Lydia's trust combined with her welcoming kindness, it allowed for the gospel to gain a foothold in Philippi. Six or seven years later, Paul sends a letter, a letter that we know is the epistle to the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. So six or seven years later, Paul writes this letter back to this church, and anybody know where Paul was when he's writing the letter? He was in jail, in chains, and he's writing this letter back to this church in Philippi, this church's body of believers that he loved, had dear friends there, Lydia being a main friend of his. So this letter, it bears witness six, seven, eight years later, still to the strong opposition to the gospel in Philippi. And he's writing it in chains. So he's in jail. They're having strong opposition still in Philippi. And despite the opposition that Paul has personally, despite the opposition that he hears about that's taking place in Philippi, he encourages them, he encourages those folks there to rejoice. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Does he say sometimes? No. He says always. Rejoice in the Lord always. But I'm there, there. They're beating me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, I got taken to jail. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, they're cussing me out. They're Rejoice in the Lord always. They're persecuting. Rejoice in the Lord always. I got a cancer diagnosis. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always means always. When that word is in Scripture, it means always. And he says, so he says that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The whole letter of Philippians is, is about joy. And I believe that verse, verse 4, chapter 4, I believe it's the key verse of the whole thing. And y'all, we, we should rejoice in the Lord always. Does it mean life's going to be a bed of roses? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But we have hope. 
We have hope. The lost world doesn't have hope. You get a cancer diagnosis, and you want to go blow your brains out, y'all. I got a cancer diagnosis, and I was saved. I had a new regenerate heart, and it was so unexplainable that I had peace. When the words came out of the doctor's mouth, I have no idea how that could be. How do, how do people who don't have that hope that is infused in your heart when you're saved... How do people go through the trials and the, and the trouble and the persecution and the sickness and the death and the pain and the loss, loss of a job or all of that stuff? I don't, know how, I don't know how they do it. But Paul says rejoice always. Rejoice because the power of the gospel is bigger and stronger and more influential and more awesomer. So the Jesus story that ultimately infiltrates all of Europe is birthed by this female seller of purple washcloths. It's unbelievable. God is so sovereign. And the message today is the same as it was then. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Christ. It is simple. There may be multiple responses to, to what we've heard today. I think there's probably two main ones. Number one is if you've never responded and said yes to that offer, but you felt that in some sort of way God's drawing you in, and I don't know how, but some sort of way. He crossed your path with somebody. He got you to hear a message for some reason. I don't know. But, but I would tell you that's one response today. And that response really is, own your junk. Admit, acknowledge, whatever words you want to put in there, that you're a sinner. doesn't mean you're a raging lunatic axe murderer. It just means that we, in our heart, is desperately wicked and sick. That's what Scripture would say. And we have an inclination towards evil. Own it and admit it. And own that that sin's got to be paid for. And confess that that payment was made on that cross. We sang a song a little while ago, taught about the blood applied. The blood was splattered all over that cross, took care of that sin. And that dead man that was on that cross went in a grave, and he was absolutely heart-stopped, not breathing dead. And he came out, heart-pumping, oxygen in his lungs, breathing alive. And that paves the way for me and you to live in eternity with him. That's about the best I can explain that. That offer is there, so don't go to sleep tonight without considering that offer. That's a response. Number two response to that message, this God's word today, may very well be figure out, pray through, take a spiritual gifts test, something. Understand, if you're a believer, that you've been given a gift, at least one. You've been given a gift, understand it, acknowledge it, and use it for the kingdom. If you have a gift of teaching, teach somebody. Facilitate a connect group and teach scripture. Get in our kids program and teach the next generation of Christ followers. If it's hospitality, use it somehow or the other for the kingdom. Whatever that gift, whatever that, that gift is, use that for the kingdom because if you don't, you're being disobedient. 
I'm a super black and white guy. If I'm given a gift, a spiritual gift, then it's on me to use that gift for the kingdom. Use that gift to leverage for someone else's forever. You know, we talk about Lydia jumping in, being baptized, and sharing the, her Jesus story with her family, and excuse me, with her potentially her family, with her servants, with whoever's in her household. And they all got baptized. And if you're not, if you're new to our church, we call that God plunge. Well, we're about to have a God plunge. We're about to dunk somebody over there. And so I want to tell you, parents, if you got kids over in the kids area, they're going to bring them over here. And, and I want you to pick them up over there. They, for security, when we're done with the Duncan, they're going to take them back over there, so pick your kids up over in the kids' area. But we're going to celebrate that baptism today. Let me pray, and if you have never said yes to, to that drawing that God does, I want you to consider doing that today. And Anybody, this cross is, is open if somebody wants to come down here and pray. If you want to come down here and drop your sins off at the foot of the cross, he will take them and he will save you right there. After we're done with everything today, our prayer team is back there in the corner. They'd love to pray with you. Lord, we love you today and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for being a God that opens up our minds to be renewed opens up our hearts to be transformed. Lord, we thank you for the blood applied. Because if it wasn't, we'd just be left to ourselves. And so, Lord, let today be the day that somebody here in this, somebody here in your word, just says these words to themselves or out loud, it doesn't matter. Today's the day that I admit that I'm a sinner. Today's the day that I, I confess all that to you, Lord. Today's the day that I understand and I believe that and I trust that, that the blood that you shed at Calvary, Lord, that, that that took care of my sin. And, Lord, I believe you walked out of the grave alive. Lord, save me in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, and I want you all to hang out for just a little, just a little bit after the baptism, after the God plunge. Um, today is Richard and Rhonda's last Sunday with us, and we're going to bring them up here, and we're going to pray over them. I want us to lay hands on them um, and just pray with them.